We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Okay, ready? what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to that might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. So the Roots, they already began their tour. They were about to go to Japan, and they had Vernon Reed from Living Color replacing uh, Ben. They needed somebody more permanent, and because Vernon had to go and be Vernon with Living Color. And I auditioned just with Questlove. It was just me and him in a room. That was my audition. And I wasn't sure if I got the gig. What is that audition like? Is he like, play me some Hendrix, play me some... No, he was just... He just played, and we played together. I played, like, whatever was at the top. I just played whatever was... He just does a drum beat. And, and I just, just played along with it. Let's I just play, see if we... If we gel, like, just the two of us. A few days later, I got a call saying, okay, we're going to go, you know, you're going to go to Japan. And I met the rest of the band at the airport. Wow. <laughs> My man, Captain Kirk Douglas... The guitarist from The Roots is back with a new album, a solo album called New Unknown. I've known Kirk forever. He's an amazing person. So I wanted to have him on to talk about music, his new album, and why he became a rock and roll guy at a time when everybody was into hip hop. It's my man, Captain Kirk Douglas on Torre Show. get into the guitar are we are we in yes the ceremony has just begun yes okay because <laughs> you grow up at a time when like everybody's doing hip-hop and you're like no no that thing that's me oh i grew up in long island okay. i lived in brooklyn till i was five okay and then we moved out to long island a town called hallbrook okay and it was not. It was more B A B than B L S, okay. out there. Okay. Um, and uh, W R C N. Those are the radio state. It was a very rock uh, centric out there, predominantly white area. You know, I moved from like East Plat- Flatbush to uh, you know Exit sixty one. Is this what your parents? Is this part of what your parents were? This is where my our parents moved. to. No, I mean like parents. like like was the music that your parents was were playing. Was it rock? No, I'm. I mean, my existence had the hybrid of at home. It was Sundays, church music. You know, my uh, my parents brought me up uh, Anglican, Episcopalian. So it was all hymns, songs from the hymnal. 
Uh, those are the hymns they grew up in Jamaica. You know, I'm of Jamaican parentage. And that was my Sunday, you know, Brahms, you know, Bach. You know, my brother's name is Handel, his wow. first name. So they were big into choral music and uh, melodic church songs of praise and so forth. But the Saturday nights before, it was all about, you know, the rockers. It was, you know, Dennis Brown, John Holt, of course, Bob Marley, uh, but a lot of ska. I, but my, my dad also loved, you know, the Commodores. He also, you know, he loved him some Elton John. I remember hearing, you know, Daniel, you know, coming from the basement, loved you know, for, for, for years. So it was a pretty, you know, rounded uh, immersion what I had, you know, but there's, you know, when you start going to school, the, the influence from your friends, you know, competes with your influence Absolutely. from your parents. So, Absolutely. and you know, rock was all things rebellious Yep. and uh, that certainly spoke to me. And then the guitar itself, that was, you know, the, the, the commonality with all the people I was seeing, you know, I'd, I'd go to my friend Chris Garcia's house, look through his record collection. I was seeing Iron Maiden records. I was seeing Ozzy records. I was seeing Van Halen records, mm. Kiss records. And, you know, when you're seven years old and you see Kiss, you know, this is a time where there's Superman, there's Batman, there's Spider-Man. They seemed like superheroes. Completely. Makeup, but, but outfits. They, but, yeah, but they were, you know, Batman never had, you know, Aside from ben -an 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 -an, there was no music <laughs> that that <laughs> that you heard that you wanted to play and emulate, and they all were holding this scepter, you know, and that's uh -huh. what the guitar was. And his older brother, Chris Garcia's older brother, Rich Garcia, had a, a Les Paul copy, and I remember seeing that up close and being like, "Oh, that's the thing that's in those pictures," and and I mean, it was just. Gorgeous. It was like equal parts spaceship, uh, fast car, skateboard, and just a, something that looked beautiful and shapely and powerful. And and it made that sound that I was hearing, you know, and that sort of loud, uh, aggressive, yet I also thought of it as beautiful too. And I, I wanted to – I was just – I, I was just held by, you know, I was just gazing at the guitar. So the instrument held all this symbolic power for you before you even started playing it. Absolutely. I mean, just going to the Smith Haven Mall out in Long Island, there's a shop called Family Melody. And just, I remember seeing that shop and seeing them all lined up in all the various colors and shapes. And, and then you'd recognize certain guitars from certain musicians and, and then I would get, you know, the guitar magazines, you know, before I knew how to play, but just, you know, it was just, just, just to see them all in one place. I'd look at the Sears catalogs and go to the guitar section. You know, I, I had quite the fixation. And so I, I remember, you know, when I expressed to my parents that I, you know, they got me like a little toy one, but I, you know, I knew it wasn't the same. And, and I was just, you know, sort of beckoning to it. Just like if there was, if there's a tennis racket, I'd always hold it like a guitar. I played violin. <laughs> I played viola actually. And I was always, you know, kind of holding it like a guitar, you know? So it's like, clearly this boy wants a guitar. And then when they finally relented, I remember when they told me that they were going to, you know, if your grids, if you, if you keep up your grids, we're going to get you the guitar. And I just was racing all around the house. Just, I was just so excited. And, um, yeah, and I got it when I was 10 years old. And, um, I just I just couldn't put it down. The first thing I think probably the first thing I learned was probably the melody to Journey's Open Arms. <laughs> da, na, 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 na. Um, but at the time I got the guitar, this is in the heyday of like Def Leppard, of Rush, of and and Van Halen. Uh, when I first heard you know uh, Eruption, I, I just thought like that instrument is making that sound and and that instrument and that sound was central to all of these songs you know they had all these hook laden songs and uh and 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 of course you know but but you know it was also you know I was also in love with kiss but at the same time you know I was also you know I had an older brother that my brother Handel he was also listening to Jackson 5 and Sly and the Family Stone and the Bee Gees so I was listening to all of these things and 
you know, in my, before I started playing, like, you know, one of the first albums I got, I got, I remember going to the record store with my dad and I, and I pointed at the, at Kiss Destroyer. That was the record I wanted. And he looked at it and he was like, but if you want that, you're going to have to get this too. And then he also made me get, let it be just, just cause just, just, just for balance. Uh, I love that dad is like, you got to have some Beatles in your life. You, yeah. you can't just eat a burger. You got to have some yeah, vegetables too. That was definitely, definitely the attitude. But I mean, but, it's, but, but, it's, you know, it was also the time of like Donna summer too. And just, you just, it, it was a great time when you're sort of like, just kind of making sense out of things. And, you know, I thought that, the, the that Kiss and the Bee Gees, I thought they were like kind of the same group, uh, and just because they had long hair, you know, this is like eight year old logic, okay, okay, you know. Okay. And I would, you know, draw, I would draw like the the Kiss makeup on 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 the Bee Gees and be like, they're, they're you know, they got to be the same people. And I remember, um, I think, I, I, I remember hearing. Um, What's the Donna Summer song? Oh, uh, hot stuff. Hot stuff. Looking for some hot stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I remember, I remember that song. Just the groove of it sounded just so like kind of devious, you know. And I thought, you know, maybe that's maybe that's Kiss on there. And I was like, and I saw the Casablanca. I was like Donna Summer. I look at look at their label Casablanca. Look at Kiss label Casablanca. It's like. Maybe they're playing on the same record. I yeah. mean, you know, of course you get older and. I mean, I knew when I was at that age, I, I was aware of all those sort of groups, but I felt like, you know, cause mostly white kids around me in school. I think I felt like I, I felt distanced from that rock stuff because I didn't see myself in that community of people. Right. And I did see my face in R and B and later in hip hop. Um, that didn't stop you. No, because I wasn't really looking at myself. You know, it's just like, I remember you don't really kind of realize it. You don't realize you're with a group of, you're in a group of white kids until you see a class picture or until you okay. are going to the movies and there's, you know, you see your a reflection of yourself in the, in the window. Um, but it's like, it was, I didn't really have a choice. And I guess part of the thing I, you know, that was nice about Kiss was they were wearing makeup and, you know, I mean, their skin, their natural skin looked darker than their made up face. Sure. So I wasn't really, you know, it was like kind of like a jumping point. You know, that was like the entry level of rock and roll for me. And so I never, I never thought of it as, you know, something that I could be a part of. I mean, I never thought of it as something I could be a part of anyway. It seemed like something other people would do. And then as I got older, um, it started, you know, then the fact you're talking about, like, started to, like, reveal itself to me. And I remember being in a battle of the bands and um, in, I guess it was ninth grade, and we, we, we crushed it for the auditions. But when we didn't make it, uh, for the Battle of the Bands. And I, uh, for that band, I was in a band called Overdrive. And I was actually in the band with the guy, this guy, uh, John Hampson, who is, was in a, is in a band Nine Days. They had the song, uh, This is the story of a girl who cried so hard she drowned the whole world. He was in the band. Okay. Um, okay. But we lost that Battle of the Bands. And I remember, like, then I did go home afterwards and looked in the mirror and, and just looked at myself and just like, okay, wearing the ripped up jeans with the spandex and it's just, I sort of had that realization that there's not, I don't know if there's really a place for me in all of this. Uh -huh. And from then I got, I, I, I really, I guess from that moment is when I really discovered Hendrix and I just found him as somebody that's like, Oh, this has a lot to do with what I feel is like a birthright here. And I, that's when I started to really absorb Hendrix and simultaneously started getting into like Motown and, um, and then I was going to camp. There's a camp, Camp DeWolf out in Long Island, Wading River. And at that camp, there would be kids from Brooklyn, Queens. And just, I started, you know, it was a, a way more integrated um, situation, you know, a lot more diversity. It was probably a predominantly black 
camp. Um, you know, just barely predominantly, but, you know, there was way more of a, a, a black presence than I found in my normal academic school life. And, um, you know, it was in the, also in the advent of Yo! MTV raps, you know, and then when I started to see that, then I started really falling in love with hip hop and like, and then, and then soon after that, you, you know, De La Soul came into the mix and then it was like, oh, okay, I kind of see how I fit into hip hop you know, in a way that I don't think I, you know, I couldn't quite identify prior that to that. That is so deep you said that because I have the same thing with Dela. Because mm-hmm. I was in love with hip hop from the first time I heard the message, the first time I heard Rapper's Delight. Right. And I don't think I fully articulated it, but I felt like, okay, so, you know, like I'm this suburban private school kid. I love this stuff. But for some reason, I'm like, I, I don't fully see myself like, in it. Like I see myself like a step away from mm-hmm. it, even though I love, you know, run DMC, right. We love Rakim. We love uh big daddy Kane, right. Go on and on. And then Dela was like, Oh, if I was in this, mm-hmm. I would be like right, that. Right. Like right. now I feel pulled into the yeah. culture the way I hadn't right. pr- he- prior. And I wouldn't even, I wasn't even aware that I didn't feel fully part of the culture mm-hmm. until I discovered them. It's like, oh, like my part of the map has now been sketched in. And yeah. I'm like, that they 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 are they are me and I am them right, within right. this. But even before then, I should say that like, you know, when you start, you know, I'd go to camp. Um, it was also in the beginning of when Run DMC was dabbling into, you know, King of Rock and all that. And you know, so I definitely, you know, when I was going to camp, I started going to camp when I, shortly after I played guitar, started playing guitar. So, like, looking at, like, summer after, uh, summer after seventh grade or so. But so it's like you start hearing King of Rock and I'm I'm able to, like, play that stuff, you know. And nobody really had, uh, you know, two turntables out there. So it's like I was kind of the closest thing to be able to, like, you know, actually, like, make some of that music. So I found myself, you know, falling right in line and actually being cool amongst, you know, these kids that were, you know, from Brooklyn and Queens and everything. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, and, and in sixth grade, you know, hello, Michael Jackson, you know, even if you're like, you know, the only black kid in your class, once Michael Jackson came, you know, to the forefront of popular culture, you know, I found myself, you know, uh, Actually, you know, when I started like break dancing, I could I could moonwalk. Oh wow! You know, I couldn't windmill. But, but I mean, but Hendrix was really important. It seems like like at a moment when you later were like, on. I don't know if this is for me, and then Hendrix like pulled you back. Like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. However, you know, that was you know, I still had it was on. It wasn't lost to me that like that was like in the late sixties. You know, that's not necessarily what's popping now. But the thing that really blew it wide open for me was when I first saw uh, living color on oh, MTV. And I, uh, okay. I, when I first saw a cult of personality, I remember like where I was and you know what I was doing. And I remember, um, uh, and that riff is so iconic. It's oh, unbelievable. Completely, completely. And, and when, when I saw that, heard that, saw them, it was just like, I mean, I could just imagine if there was a movie, like what my face would look like, you know, just like, oh. yeah, yeah. A lot of that. And, um, and and I so at the time I was 16 years old and there was a lot going on that time and then shortly after that you start discovering like Fishbone mm-hmm. and also you know like Fishbone also like kind of bled into the other alternative things that were going on at the time you know like bands like the Sugar Cubes and also groups like you know the Cure and the Smiths you know and that was like you know there was sort of an underlying or it was above the surface surface, uh, an aspect of being an outsider, you know, and I felt like an outsider on, you know, just multiple levels at that point. But the beautiful thing is when you're involved in the arts or when you have any sort of outlet that gives you a place to express your feelings about being an outsider and find arts that resonate with the feeling of being an outsider, you just, at that age feel seen and then you find a way that you can sort of uh, participate in it. So I, I, I absorb all of it, you know, the Cocteau twins, the, you know, the, the, like I said, the Smiths um, 
and also living color and also, you know, um, and also Fishbone and 24-7 Spies. And mm. and I would go to the library and I would, you know, just look at the Village Voice and look at all the shows and see if, is there like a show that I could actually go to that my parents would let me go to? And it was beautiful being out in, you know, in Long Island because, you know, going to the city is only like, you know, it's only an hour and 20 minutes away. So, I mean, my very first time going to um, – Washington Square Park and just going to the West Village. I mean, that just Ooh. blew my mind wide open too. Just, it's like, oh my, God. you know. Sure. It's it was incredible, and There's, I bought a Hendrix shirt. You know, it was just it was amazing. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. There's something, with the guitar, there's something very masculine and egotistical, I think, about it, right? Like, it, it, you talk about that, like, you, do you feel that thing? I mean, the, I mean, we talk about guitar gods. We don't talk about keyboard gods, right? They're, you know, we love the drummer, right? He's, he's central, but, like, the guitar. Yeah. Um, the, the, the fact, I, I think just the fact that you can make a loud noise with it, the, the fact that, you know, once you bring the guitar into the realm of, you know, distortion and, you know, it's sort of, there's the, on a subconscious level, the, the way that when you hear a motorcycle go by, it's just like, it's like that loud sound, but, you know, to take that loud sound and, and turn it into music and turn it into songs, um, you know, I guess there, there's the, you know, the, the phallic aspect of it, you could say, but, mm -hmm. you know, as I said before, you know, there's something about the instrument that it just looked like, it just looked like a scepter that, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, somebody had all their, uh, power in and that you could, yeah, I mean, there was something about it almost looked like a gun, you know, that's like, and you sort of, uh, can sort of. Uh, but but there's also something and, and also the colors of it. Um, I, I mean, yeah, there is that connotation of of masculinity. But I mean, when I think of how I use the guitar now, and I think of you know how I was describing before, like how I was feeling in my adolescent years, 
um, there was also something super delicate about it. You know, when you take away the imagery and, and when you realize that that delicateness, a lot of that comes from that instrument, um, it just, it, it invites you to look deeper, you know, and, but, you know, as far as popular culture is concerned, yeah, they're going to associate, you know, the, the guitar with the low slung Jimmy Page, you know, archetype, you know, and, and also the, the Hendrix archetype, you know, um, there's, there's no getting away from that aspect of it, but that's only one aspect of it that popular culture has latched onto. Mm. Uh, but looking deeper, you know, you find that there's more and none of those groups that I just, those two men that I just described could not exist without their more, um, they're more delicate works, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you need, I think, you know, you need that sort of contrast with, you know, uh, manic depression and Foxy lady. You, you also need may this be love. And have you ever been to electric Ladyland? with, you know, you need whole lot of love, but you like whole lot of love is that much heavier knowing that somewhere else in the show, you're going to get the rain song, mm. you know, and, and then, you know, and also like, and, and we have to bring up Prince, you know, just like when I was in seventh grade, I remember seeing the commercial for Purple Rain and, you know, I wasn't aware of, you know, I knew I want to be your lover, but I didn't know who did it. I just heard it was a song I heard on the radio. But when you saw the commercial, I saw the commercial for, for Purple Rain, heard that guitar and it was just like, okay, all right. That's my shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. However, I mean. But but, I, but my point for bringing up Prince though is like he had you know the his, his the music that was just built for annihilation, and also he had you know the the condition of the heart you know it's like the, the aspect of of you know range and you know um, having like artists having you know a dichotomy in their repertoire you know that's I think that goes for anybody just just any artist and um in some cases it's more pronounced than others but um it, you, you sort of you sort of you know you need the delicateness and you need the heaviness you know so wait so tell me about the new album um new unknown like what, what were some of your let's say goals with it like what did you set out to do what did you do i set out to self soothe really wow. it was just during the pandemic and uh at a time when many people were baking artisanal bread yep. or editing uh, documentaries or getting into that which they under normal circumstances don't have the time to do i chose to get better with recording myself uh so you I, did it at home I did it at home. Yeah. I wow. did it mostly at a lot of it at my mother's house. Wow. Um, there's a, you know, the, the, the basement of my mother's house, that's like the, that's the site of many a new year's Eve party. It's the site of, you know, hours of me shedding and learning how to play. It was, you know, it's like kind of my musical incubator, that basement. And it's also a place where there's a drum set set up and, you know, what, right before the pandemic started, I started dabbling with home recording because I found a lot of music that I've been getting into, discovering that a lot of it was made at home. Bands like uh, Tame Impala and bands like um, Unknown, Unknown Mortal Orchestra, you know, they're, you know, a lot of that stuff's created in, in home studios. And uh, when you're able to, sort of create in an environment where you're completely comfortable and your ideas are flowing, I feel like you can really capture some authenticity there that maybe in a studio is, is more difficult to, to, to capture. Hmm. So during the pandemic, I, you know, I have a friend, Rick Sheridan, he was in a band, Earl Greyhound and, um, and him, him and I, like I've known him since, you know, the nineties and, we have a, a very strong musical connection. And um, when we found that we were, you know, we can get tests and realize that we didn't have COVID and it was okay to be around my mom. They were like, let's go out to Long Island. We would just barbecue and go in the basement and I'd set up the mics and, 
and we would record stuff. And so, so it wasn't, the intention wasn't let's make an album. It was just like, let's just record. And the recordings accumulated and songs formed. And after, and then realizing that, you know, there's enough songs here to be an actual album. And so, you know, just for every song on there, there was like, every song is like a moment where that song was sort of the kind of most important thing going on in my life to sort of take my attention away from uh, the other things that were going on at the time, you know, namely like the election and (laughs) George Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. The world on fire. So it was sort of a way to sort of process what I was seeing around me and simultaneously not, you know, take me away from the rabbit hole of, you know, um, how was feel how it was seeming like humanity was getting. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, to be able to capture the stuff, uh, record different parts and then think of lyrics and then to record and sing those lyrics and to hear those things come back to you out of the speakers is, uh, just, just really gratifying. And, if the, I, so I guess, you know, then after it's done, I guess I, then a goal did formulate and that was just to, you know, to basically just share it with whoever it would resonate with. And, um, and, you know, even though we're not exactly in those particular times, um, you know, everything ain't all right completely. And, you know, there's still, some people are still dealing with, you know, the fallout from, from, from that time. And, uh, I, and that's sort of what the music is for, like for whoever really needs it, whoever, and also whoever, you know, sees the roots, uh, experiences us and, you know, wonders what else I may do. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's nice to have, uh, you know, an example of recorded document of where I'm at, you know, musically when I'm not, surrounded by my roots brothers. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey this episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus get in loser Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic get ready for more of the rumors backstabbing and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises rated PG-13 wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free Let's talk about the roots because my relationship with the roots goes back way back. I know. I remember reading your first article from Fader. From the well, with the, I, with, with the roots on one side and Cody Chestnut on the other. Well, I was living in Philadelphia during college, and uh, somebody said, "Yo, you got to go see these guys. They were going to play at the Painted Bride, this mm-hmm. uh, uh, art gallery, and." Um, it was just four of them. The Square Roots, they were oh, called. There was square the Square Roots. roots. It was a okay. white boy on upright bass and uh, Tariq, Black Thought in front. And Questlove, I'll never forget, because it was this square sort of room. He got up from the drum kit and drummed a circle around the outside of the room, drumming on the wall and the floor. 
kept the beat really? as he walked around the room drumming on surfaces. Got back on the set. Never lost the beat. The song continued throughout all of this. It was like, <laughs> that that was extraordinary. But this is when, you know, they're playing on Saturdays and doing their thing for the public or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I remember watching the rise of it, right? And from, from the very beginning. So you come along, you're like, you know, like we already are a rock star team, you know, whatever. And like, you know, like then, then, then another guy comes in, like, right. When we're already like stars, right. Like you come into like an established professional, like serious situation. So, but, and it wasn't just like you're in, right. It took a minute to like seep in, right. You're playing with them and then it grows and then you're like, now you're hired, right? Yeah. Basically, um, they had, they just released phrenology and they were on tour and their guitar player at the time, Ben Kenny, uh, left the band to join the band Incubus. Oh, wow. So the Roots were just about to go to, they already began their tour. They were about to go to Japan and they had Vernon Reed from Living Color re replacing uh, Ben. But, you know, that was just intermittently. Um, they needed somebody more permanent. And because Vernon had to go and be Vernon with Living Color. So I was friends. I, I befriended Vernon from my years of playing in Manhattan and sort of cutting my teeth on the scene there with various bands, various poets, drag queens. Um, and I remember seeing The Roots. First time I saw The Roots live, Vernon was sitting in with them. They played five nights at the Knitting Factory. I saw them three out of those five nights. And I thought what you thought. This band is extraordinary. I wouldn't mind being in a band like that. Um, I mean, this is a great job. Oh, yeah, I'm fully aware of this. <laughs> and I, and, and I, I wasn't aware what it would become. I mean, this know. is unusual that a player gets sucked into an established band and, like, you know, we're already making a lot of money, doing a lot of shows, doing a lot of records. Like, just come join the circus. And, like, right? I mean, that doesn't... Yeah, that's basically what happened. I was teaching preschool during the day wow. and playing in the various bands at night. And I auditioned just with Questlove. Just it was just me and him in a room. That was my audition, wow. and I wasn't sure if I got the gig. What is that audition like? Is he like play me some, play me some Hendrix, play me some? No, he was just he just played, and we played together. I played like whatever was at the top of. I just played whatever was. He just does a drum beat, and, and I just, just played along with it. Let's I just play, see if we if we gel like just the two of us, and. Um, and so it's a jam. It's yeah, an improv jam. Yeah, two-person improv jam. And then he stopped and he mentioned, you know, he mentioned uh, Jay Dilla. Uh -huh. And he mentioned, you know, Dilla's concept of time, of of how they like to sort of play, the concept of playing drunkenly yet on, like, but but in unison playing behind the beat in unison and uh, sort of to just play with time, you know? And I never really, uh, it was never really explained to me like that before, but he, you know, it was a very short interview, but in that short period of time, he dropped that knowledge on me. And so I, you know, marinated on that. And then, and then a few days later, I got a call saying, okay, we're going to go, you know, you're going to go to Japan. And I met the rest of the band at the airport. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, then I met everybody again, you know, when we arrived in Japan, actually, no, that's not true. I met everybody. I met some of them when they played at, at, uh, at, um, Roseland. They were okay. playing a show at Roseland. I was actually getting tickets for my wife cause it was on her birthday. Oh, wow. They were playing at Roseland. I was trying to get her tickets, but we wound up getting on the list because, there was, I had some relevance to their performance and I met everybody at soundcheck. And I remember, uh, Greg Tate was at the soundcheck oh, oh, and, great um, Greg Tate. yeah. And, uh, Rich Nichols was there and, oh, and they just had manager. me. Yeah. And they just had me, I was on stage with them and I didn't play. They just, I didn't know what was going on, but it could have very well been. My hypothesis is 
that they wanted to see what I looked like on stage with them. Interesting. I I, that, I think I cannot confirm that or deny. That's just I don't know what else I was doing on stage. So it was a test that you didn't know. Kind of. I think so. But what was it like joining this established unit? Well, I think the beautiful thing was the fact that it happened in Japan. And in Japan, you're in a place where the vibe that I experienced was everybody was just so happy to see them. Because uh, it was the first time I've ever seen anything on that level of of to, fandom. To be playing for that many people. Yeah, yeah. Like the first show was for like 5,000, like a 5,000 seater place and um and then the shows following were shows at the blue note over there we played like three different blue notes and these were two shows a night two sets for a a small audience maybe an audience of like 150 or 100 or so um and it was basically um uh an experiment an experiment ground, you know, where they could see how I fit in. We could try new stuff. Excuse me. Um, you know, just randomly, you know, he was just like, Hey, you know, he just said, all right, we're going to just play a blues solo. We're just going to, you know, and just to see how it goes. And then that blues solo that I played wound up being part of the set for like, you know, two years, you know, but it was born in Japan. And I later realized maybe, uh, it was conscious or not, but Every time we'd go to Japan was seemed to be like a, t- a time when we would try new things mm. for an audience that was um, uh, it was a soulful, enthusiastic audience. But I this say. changes your life to be able to join a, a band like The Roots. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I, but I mean, and I when I did my first gig with them, I still had my ticket stubs from the Knitting Factory, and I had them sign it because I didn't know how long I was going to last. I didn't know. Right. Yeah, I mean, I. I didn't know if I was a band aid. I didn't know if I was a band member. You know, it was just, I I wasn't sure how long it would last. So, you know, when we came back to the States and I started, you know, getting emails with our schedule, like, oh, wow, I think I'm really in this band. And then we did a summer tour where we played with uh, NERD and uh, Robert Randolph. It was the Sprite Liquid Mix Tour. Talib Kweli was on that tour. And that was like my first time kind of seeing America, you know, and middle America too. And, and then we did a week opening up for Dave Matthews Oh wow! and, and then like at the end of the tour, Dave Matthews invited me on stage to do all along the watchtower with him. Wait, how how has it changed your life joining the group? Well, I, I, when I filled out my taxes, I could actually write, musician when it asked for occupation oh before that it was preschool teacher yeah and and the roots allowed you to become a full-time musician yeah wow yeah i mean when at the time i joined the band i went down to part-time preschool teacher because i did start getting more gigs you know i went going to japan with them with them was not my first time going to japan my first time ever going to japan with with a gentleman by the name of tm stevens who played bass in he played with Miles Davis, but his highest visibility was probably with uh, he's in the video for So Emotional with Whitney Houston. He's also the black guy that was playing with the Pretenders for a stretch on uh, there's that song My Baby. He's in that video. Uh, Don't get me wrong. That period of the Pretenders. Mm, he was in love them. Yeah, he was in in that incarnation of the Pretenders. So he brought me to Japan for the first time. Um, but like I was saying, I was I I. I was getting enough gigs that I could go down to part-time as a preschool teacher, but I still wanted my insurance and my parents still, you know, like when I first told my parents that. Oh, you mean your health insurance? My health insurance. I thought you meant like, like insurance, like take care of it. Like, no, literally like I did. This is. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Literal (laughs) insurance, my friend. That's like, I had to like answer to my parents. Because rock bands don't have insurance. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, I mean, and then modern day insurance, like that didn't kick in until we started doing like probably the, uh, late night with Jimmy. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyhow, I mean, when I told my parents, I might be joining this band called the roots and I might have to leave Greenwich house preschool. They're like, Kirk, what about your insurance? Kirk, the man carry gone, you know, just a rap group. 
Like they were really concerned. They thought you were joining NWA. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I was like, don't no, they no, no. they smell like incense and berries. Like they're the you don't have to worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but to your point, yeah, it totally did change my life. It just it's um it just allowed me to really focus on music all the time, which is pretty much the greatest gift. I mean, I'll I have to say, you know, just being here talking to you, doing this album, you know, I have to, I, I have to zoom out on the whole thing and just, you know, being in the roots allows me to, you know, pursue, to further pursue my musical dreams. Sure. And to be part of the roots was one musical dream. And so it's just like, you know, to, to reach more people, that's a continuation of kind of pretty much the same dream. And, you know, when I think about, you know, the record I recorded and trying to share it with people and when I think about, like, how realistic is it to reach a lot of people, then I, I have to stop and say, well, wait a second. How realistic was it for you to join The Roots? Like, what's mm. more realistic here? Mm. So that sort of, you know, puts things into perspective for me. So wait, tell me a crazy Roots story because I know, like, you know, People are coming in and out, like famous people are coming in to see you guys and Quest Love puts you in crazy situations. And so you have a crazy, like, oh my God, this would only happen to me if I was in the roots sort of story. Well, I mean, yeah, I wish I could, I mean, I could probably think of a bajillion, but um, just, just one story is like when we did, like, as far as like, this is only happening because I'm in the roots, like just from that statement, the story that comes to mind is playing the rock and roll hall of fame mm. in Cleveland. And we're supposed to be honoring the beastie boys. Mm. And, um, so it's the roots. It's Travi, I think from, uh, gym class heroes, it's kid rock. It's, um, and, and, and we're there to honor the beastie boys. Cause it was like, kind of like when they were being honored, being honored, it was in question because, it was at the time that uh, uh, MCA was, uh, he was sick, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so we were, we were slated to do it. And then like, I think the day before, and they, there was talk, it was like, is Jimmy going to be involved in it? Maybe Jimmy should do it. And I think it, like, it was like the day before they were like, I, I think Quest, Quest Love was just like, all right, you got to do sabotage. You got to do, um, and, and I'm, and I'm thinking, well, why doesn't, you know, we, we, when Kid Rock do it? And so I was like, okay, you know, and, and when you hear stuff like that, it's like, you don't sort of, you don't argue, you don't be like, you know, you just sort of like, okay, fine. That's what I'm doing. And so then I was so nervous about it, you know, because, and then, you know, to get there, I met, um, Ad Rock and Mike D and, um, and just, you just want to do his part justice, you know? And, uh, and I did it, you know, did, and then, so, so it's like Kid Rock and it's like Travi from Gym Class Heroes and then it goes to me and it says, I remember seeing it on, on TV when it aired and it, when it aired, it was after MCA already passed away. I think he passed away like that weekend when it aired. But, um, you know, there's just no other situation, no other band I think I could be in where something like that could happen, you know? So that was one of those one of those things was like, yep, only in the roots, you know, <laughs> being at the NAACP awards and, you know, Bono gets honored and we have to do, you know, pride in the name of love, like in front of Bono and then, and, you know, black thought, you know, I shall proceed black thought, you know, is doing one verse of pride in the name of love. And then I go and do the other verse of pride in the name of love in front of Bono, you know, like, and it's like on live TV. Yeah. At the NAACP Awards. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that can only happen with the roots. <laughs> I remember um, talking a lot to Rich Nichols, your late manager, about going into Fallon. And there was a lot of discussion within the group of should we do this? And like, it's a total change from what you had been, what the group had been before. Um, and I remember he talked about the touring market was, was, was drying up for middle-class groups, right? Who are not 
gigantic superstars doing arenas and are not doing like small places. You guys were in the middle. And he said, it's getting harder for us. And, you know, this, this just solves all those problems. Was there a group conversation about like, should we do this and how this changes what we have signed up to do here? It wasn't a group conversation. It was a mass email. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I remember. So it's not really a democracy. Not, no, I no. wouldn't say so. No, I mean. Is it really two people who make all the decisions or is it really one? No, it's it's two. Yeah. It's two. It's Black Thought and Questlove. I mean, you, I think that sort of streamlines the navigation. But does Quest system. ever not get what he wants? Um, You'd have to ask him, but that's like, <laughs> you know, that's, it's. Seems like he's first among equals and when he's like, hey guys, I think we should do this then. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. You know, but but it's between it's between him and Tariq. You know, sure. Questlove and Black Thought they they work. You know, they've been together since high, high school, school. You know, so it's like they really know each other like to each other's core, and um, you know, they've and I think the the fact that everybody goes off and does their own thing, um, sort of it's part of what's allowed the group to last for such a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, people are encouraged to do other things, other projects and stay creative. It's like kind of like being in this extended uh, school. Are you happy with the Fallon life though? Cause you signed up for a rock band and it's a little different than that now. I mean, I would be unhappy if I stayed the same age and stayed at the same space in life. <laughs> I'd be like, what gotta the hell grow. is this? We got to grow. Yeah. But because of, you know, me getting older along with everybody else, people getting in marriages, people wanting to stay married, um, this would be an ideal situation. To not be on the road again, to like be able to see your so wait, kids was grow. Being in the, was being on the road a challenge to your marriage? I mean, it's, a, it's for anybody that's married to be away from your spouse for an extended period of time. It's like, it's straining, you know? And then when kids come into play and, you know, um, you know, my wife, my wife will tell you just like from the experiences of like having to, uh, experience certain things like by herself, you know, while I'm out on tour, you know, it's challenging, you know? Uh, so that was the case for my son. I missed a lot from his early years, you know, but my daughter, you know, I got to see so much more. And that was because we had, you know, our gig at 30 rock every day. I mean, I remember when I first heard that this is something we might do and, you know, just, it just sounded like too good to be true. You know, to like do a gig and then come home and have dinner with the family. You know, <laughs> what is that? You know, that was amazing. I mean, we're in the era now when a lot of people are able to do residencies. Yeah. Right. And yeah. like, this is a residency. Yeah. Right. Pretty much just in New it's, York instead yeah. of Vegas or AC. True. True. I, you know, let me say this. I feel like everybody in the group is well used in terms of their ability in the Fallon context, except for my man, Black Thought. I mm -hmm. feel like what he is, he is such a genius. And what he is able to do in the Fallon context is lesser than what he was doing when you guys were, you know, doing tours and more albums and stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? Like, like, I think like there's a lot for Quest and you and others to do, but there's, le you know, James, but there's less for him to do. Well, he's, I mean, in, in the more recent years, he's definitely been more like a comedic foil for Jimmy. Mm -hmm. You know, they sort of, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. go back and forth. And, you know, there's a lot of that that's unscripted. So, you know, his timing, his quick, you know, witt witticism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is definitely utilized, I would say. Um, and, you know, the, for however you would think that, you know, we're not fully, you know, utilized, that is sort of, by the grace of God, the thing that allows us to be able to do other things. Mm -hmm. You know, if the job was more uh, all-encompassing, 
then you would, you know, maybe Summer of Soul would not have been of such great quality. You know, mm-hmm. maybe Black No More would not, you know, be of such great quality. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so it sort of allows um, everybody else to sort of, you're able to fulfill, you know, the obligation of, you know, of the Tonight Show, have a good time while doing it, um, get to see your boys and play together and, you know, keep the the glue that holds you all together you know, intact and still be able to see, you know, your family grow and still be able to nurture that aspect of your life and still be creative outside of those, uh, outside of those boundaries as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a great existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You talked about your parents for coming from Jamaica Mm -hmm. and, you know, Jamaica has had such a gigantic influence on American music. I th- there, there's no place outside of America that has had a more massive influence on American music than Jamaica. And I don't think it gets enough due. And it's not just hip hop. It's not just reggae. It's like so much. Yeah. Um, wh- why is it that Jamaica... Out of all the places, because there's a lot of islands down there that a lot, there's a lot of great musical culture for why is that Jamaica has had such a massive impact on American music? I think, I think Jamaica had an amazing ambassador. I think, Mm. you know, I, with, with Bob Marley, I think that's, but that's just one thing. I mean, it could very well have to do with just the fact that uh, Jamaicans are also lovers of American music. Mm-hmm, Jamaicans mm-hmm, love mm-hmm. country music, you know, and I, I think it just be based on being able to get um, American radio stations, you know, be able to like get signals from American and, or I don't know how we were able to get those records, those country records, but hearing them and then, and then, reinterpreting them, whether it's through cover songs or through writing our own songs and also doo-wop. Um, I think, I think, you know, with, with, you know, also with poverty and, and being able to see music as a way to break out of poverty mm. when you really want it that bad, when you really want to break out of poverty that bad. And when you are, you know, to put it, you know, kind of poetically, you know, singing for your supper, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, there's something that all that goes into the music. And I, I just love the fact that, you know, at my advanced age now, I can still hear all this reggae that I've never heard before. I'm always, you know, I love on Saturday mornings from eight to 12, this WKCR, uh, uh, DJ Von Allstar, I listened to his station. Uh, DJ Mush, I think he's on uh, Wednesday nights on, um, is it NYU One station? Uh, but I, I'm always, I'm hearing the stuff that I grew up with that bring take, take me back to those parties in my parents' basement. And I'm also hearing stuff that I've never heard of that I'm putting up my Shazam to the speaker mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I could discover like what it is. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I, so, you know, basically I think as Jamaicans, they loved American music and sort of reinterpreted it and spat it back out in a way that was appealing to not just Americans, but you know, all around the world. And there's so many people who have immigrated from Jamaica and had a massive impact on American music. I mean, just in hip hop, you think about cool Herc, uh, you know, uh, Biggie Busta. I mean, there's so much of yeah. like, you know, I don't know what American American music and hip hop in particular doesn't look the same mm-hmm. without all the Jamaican influence. Yeah, and that's a huge you know source of pride. You know, and then and and then you know then when you start getting into the food oh <laughs> aspect oh of it, God. it's just like yes, I'm really really super thankful to be. Wait, what's your Jamaican. so what's your your favorite out of the Jamaican 
uh, classics. The, the 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 food classics. I love I love stew peas. Mm. <laughs> My mom makes a mean stew peas. I love oxtail. Oxtail I, is the central thing. I love oxtail. I love I love I love of course curried goat, but I love Akin saltfish. Okay. 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 Just yeah. I love um, you, covered, you covered pretty much all of them now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's hard to narrow it down to one, but I I'm and just uh, like a good a good chicken soup, just a good Jamaican chicken soup. Well, there's nothing like when you're when you're going down the road in Jamaica, and there's a guy with a big uh, like broiler or whatever, the big black smoker, and you get like a jerk chicken from him, and he's like got the big the big cleaver, yes, and he's chopping it yes, like all right, yes. like oh my gosh, it's got a little crispy to it, and it's uh. making me want to go there right now. <laughs> <laughs> So talk about, um, I ask everybody, what does being black mean to you and where does it show up in the work? Um, what does it mean to me? It's, I, you know, everything that I've mentioned about like where I grew up and that experience, it's, I think it's, it factors into just my uniqueness. I think I have a unique perspective because it's like it's it's the suburbia that I grew up in, but there's also the the family aspect and the parentage and um, the brought up see, you know, that that they call it. Um, <laughs> the brought up see, yeah, like how I was brought up. That's that's <laughs> how Jamaicans like to put it, and. Um, you know, there's 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 the black people that sort of, you know, feel like they don't fit in. You yeah. know, um, you know, I guess you know, I've there's been times when I've definitely felt like a black misfit. Sure. And um, and then I look at so many that I've been inspired by, and I and I look at like what they've given to me and what they've given to my soul, you know, the, you know, the Funkadelics, you know, the Lenny Kravitzes, the, you know, the living colors, you know, and just the, the, the people that, that sort of, you know, have gotten the, you know, too, you know, white for black audiences, um, you know, too black for, you know, white audiences, too white for black audiences, too Black yeah. for white audiences, um, and just there's th that sort of space where you are just feel like you are beyond categorization musically, and um, and sort of representing those people, but you're also at a space in a space where um, you know lyrically you can like talk about those things too, and. Uh, sort of express, you know, how they're, you know, your side of the story, it's just express your unique perspective based on that and give, you know, those that, you know, that it resonates with, have them feel a home in your work. It's crazy that you have or do feel like a misfit, a racial misfit, right? That's because you're doing rock when a lot of people, black people aren't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, though, I've also lived long enough to know that, you know, and we're in a, a time right now where there's people are breaking boundaries sure. in so many different ways. And obviously this is an, this is an historically black form. And yet it's been whatever commodified, taken over, whatever you want to say. And so now you come up and you're like, wow, like, I love this. Right. But like, I feel not. And do you feel not welcomed or do you feel like because I am in this, this tribe, other tribes are like, mm, I don't know about him. I mean, you can't really overly concern yourself. You know, at this state, I can't concern myself with how it's going to be received because I'll just drive myself sure. so crazy with sure. it. Um, I look at, uh, you know, people that are just like, I've been in recent days seeing people that have 
that, you know, that have been deified just speak super recklessly. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not doing that. You know, um, you know, you look at some people, it's like, really, this is your King, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, well, what, so I feel every bit entitled to put out my perspective musically, sure. especially when it's like, you know, when it's one's birthright. Sure. And especially when we're in 2022, where, you know, to to uh, express one's uniqueness, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, gender fluidity or whether it's, you know, your, your, your body type, you know, just like, you know, all we're talking about here is just my, you know, my musical perspective here. So on one level, it's deep because it's you know, it's a black man that's questioning his right to play rock and roll, you know? And on the other side, it ain't that deep. It's just music. It's, it's, it's the place where we come together to sort of forget about the things that divide us. And we're more in tune to what brought us here together, which is the vibration of music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's all of those things. That's it. Thanks for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.